And I always try to slow students down and say, worry less about what it is that you are trying to say. And ask yourself, who do I want to listen to? That is to say that painting and politics and everything else for me is about building a lifelong posture of listening. My name is Linda Laurel, and I'm asking you to have the courage to listen with an open mind to all of our voices, because our voices matter. Hi, everybody. It's Linda Laurel, and this is Our Voices Matter Across the Generations. I have to say, I am learning so much in doing this series because I get to talk to and meet people like today's guest. Jordan Seabury is the co-director of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, which, by the way, is not a government organization, which he will explain. Uh, Jordan is a painter, an organizer, a legislative advocate, and an educator. He has a Master of Studies in Law, summa cum laude, thank you very much, from Roger Williams University School of Law in Bristol, Rhode Island. And in 2014, he got his BFA at the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island. He's got a rather amazing backstory, and his view of the world and our future is one that you are really going to enjoy. I cannot wait for you to hear, see, Jordan Seabury. So here we go. Jordan Seabury, what an absolute pleasure and honor to meet you and have a chance to have a conversation with you. How are you? And welcome to the show. Linda, I'm so happy to be here. Really happy to meet you and so excited to learn, share some of my story, but also learn about yours as well. Um, I'm doing well. It is much chillier in New England than it is in Houston today, I'm guessing. Uh, well, but- Maybe not. It's like 30 degrees here right now. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, a, that's a bit apocalyptic for, for a Southerner like yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a transplanted Southerner. Um, because we both have Chicago in our roots, both having grown up that's on right. the South side of Chicago. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful city. I miss, I miss many things about it very dearly. Winter, not particularly being one of them. I'm with you on um, that. <laughs> it, it, my body feels like as soon as I got on the plane to go to college out east, it just forgot what a real winter was. It has softened up. I have. Uh, I, I don't think I could make it a, a minute through a Chicago winter now. I, I'm with you. I don't think I could either. I, I truly yeah. don't. So you you talked about just a moment ago about moving back east. So let's let's talk about uh, about moving to Rhode Island. Um, what was that trajectory for you? First of all, as a as an organizer, as an activist, as somebody who is really engaged and involved in what is going on, um, tell tell our audience how you describe yourself, and then tell us a little bit about the trajectory from Chicago to Providence, Rhode Island. Sure, and my trajectory starts long before. Chicago or Rhode Island or my own birth. I, anytime I talk about my own work or my own um, practices, I always try to talk about where it feels like my story actually starts, which is in a small town called Sugarlock, Mississippi, which is where my grandfather was born. Um, tiny town, tiny, tiny town. And he was born about a mile and a half outside of that tiny town. So just middle of the beautiful pine country, clay soil, 
cotton mouth snakes slithering all over the place. Um, he was born and raised there and he was chased out following a lynching. Uh, and like millions of other black families at the time, he moved up north. Uh, and many of the narratives around those folks who moved argue that they were uh, leaving the South in search of jobs, when in reality, as we know, they were in many cases running from something, running from the state-sanctioned violence, terrorism that became hallmarks of so, so many places. And so he moved up to Chicago, uh, right up the Mississippi River, and that's the city that I was born in. And for me, as an artist and an organizer, thinking about my own origin story in relation to that act of violence, that had it not been for that lynching, had it not been for that exile, I may have been born in a, into a very different world, a world in Sugarlock, Mississippi, where I'm on a tiny three-acre farm uh, that my grandparents, uh, that my grandfather, rather, was born on. And that instead, because of this act of violence, I was raised in Chicago in a city that all kinds of news media and narratives describe as just a violent wasteland. And I know, and you know, mm. that it is an incredibly rich and diverse and beautiful place to grow up. Mm. But the, the way that those narratives have shaped even my own life uh, are just so, so interesting to me and such, a, such an origin for myself as a painter. So I always, anytime I talk, before I talk about Rhode Island, before I talk about Chicago, I always start down. And, in, and I am so thankful that you did that, that you shared that with us. I'm getting chills right now because we have a very similar story mm. on it in my husband's family. And that the, the short version is a member of, I think it was his, his father or no, his grandfather um, was had had was put on a on a train and had to flee the night that he had um, stood up for himself um, in the South in Mississippi, and they were coming to get him. And his family said, "You got to go, and you got to go now." And they put him on a train, and he went up north. And that was the the beginning of my husband's family in the St. Louis, East St. Louis area. So there are countless stories like that in the Black American experience. And um, I love that that you are connecting those dots between your, your family roots and what you do now. And I, I know that it shows up in your art. Um, it shows up in the way that, that you live your life. So talk talk to us a little bit about where, how you started off as an artist and then move more into your, your trajectory to, uh, to Rhode Island and, and RISD. Sure. Sure. I, so as you know, I was born and raised on the South side of Chicago, um, bounced around to a bunch of different schools as a young kid and found my feet really planted actually with a nonprofit organization in the city called Marwen, M-A-R-W-E-N. And they provided they still do provide really incredible um, art classes and workshops and a community for public school students through the city. And it was there. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a regular public school kid at this point, but I'm learning how to uh, do Egyptian bookbinding 
I'm learning oil painting level one, two, three, watercolor, printmaking, woodcuts. I mean, just incredible, incredible, an incredible resource for, for a young kid. Uh, as we know, arts programming in, in schools, particularly public schools, is constantly on the chopping block. And mm. so to have a space like that for me yeah. was absolutely a, a total life changer. And so they really... They really shaped my attention and my ability to see a future for myself as an artist um, and get past the fears of the starving artist stereotype and all of the the narratives around that. And to really focus in on that this was the thing I cared most about and this is what I was going to do. So I set my sights on the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, I applied. I was extremely lucky to uh, get in and get a scholarship uh, to attend. And about as fast as I got there to my dream school, I realized that I was miserable. It was probably Why? about to, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a few different factors. One, it was a culture shock for sure. There's no, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a predominantly white institution. Um, it's a very expensive institution. So the class differences are, are really stark, but also, I was coming into a political awakening that I was just not prepared to hold. Mm. I was the beautiful thing about being an artist is that you're constantly learning. You're constantly meeting new folks and new communities. But what that thrust me into was a sudden, just like a lightning, a thunderclap of understanding classism, racism, mm. homophobia, um, colonialism, capitalism, these structures that when I was a young kid, all I wanted to do was be a comic book illustrator and a painter. And I thought that was enough to keep me to, to fulfill my life. And as soon as I got to art school, my, my mind cracked open. Everything, everything changed. It opened up your, your mind, your eyes to a whole different kind of existence. So what did you do with that? How did, how did, how did you handle that? Linda, I really struggled. I really, really didn't know how to grapple with all of these new challenges and interests. I was so overwhelmed by what I perceived at the time to be the inadequacy of art to deal with, to reckon with those challenges. Suddenly painting felt like a luxury, something frivolous, something stupid. Um, and everything that I was spending my time on just became less and less meaningful to me as I was understanding the political structures that shaped our lives. And I don't still believe, I don't believe that today, but at the time it was a perfect cocktail for isolation, alienation, depression. I mean, I was just in a really dark place. I was so uncertain of not only what mattered to me any longer, but how even to, how to not feel so powerless, how to actually engage with these issues. So to answer your question, how did I deal with it? I dropped out. <laughs> I left the Rhode Island School of Design thinking that I was done with art, both as a community and as a practice. I didn't keep in touch with friends uh, really from school. I didn't keep up with my own painting practice. I decided I wanted to dive 
fully into the thing that I had deemed worthy, which was political organizing. So I connected with, and I had been volunteering um, for some time with a small um, organizing nonprofit in Providence called DARE, but not the uh, uh, mm -hmm. drug awareness right. uh, one. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been working with them just in a volunteer capacity. And eventually they saw that I had a bit of a knack for relationship building and some strategy and, and that I was really interested in these things. And so uh, I was lucky to, to then get a position as the organizer overseeing the prisoners' rights campaign work that they were, that they were holding. So at the time, they were focused on prisoners' rights, housing, and youth development. And so I was overseeing the, the prisoners' rights division. And that meant working with folks who were currently incarcerated, families of folks who are incarcerated, and of course, folks coming out of prison mm -hmm. to not only help them get on their feet and have a sense of community, but to do some of that civil rights organizing, to be fighting for legislation, protests, rallies at the prison, really that old school movement building, base building type of work. So I dove all the way into political organizing and didn't paint a thing. No, it was... It was it was, it was during this time, if I, if I read this correctly and in several of the things that I've read about you, um, you spent, you said you were in a very dark place and you spent some time being homeless. Was that during this time before you got into the organizing? I mean, how, how did, how did that happen? First of all, and, and how, how did you survive it? Yeah, it was, um, it points to the rashness of my calculation when I was dropping out. You know, I, I, I knew that I was unhappy. I knew that I needed an escape valve. Um, but what I didn't calculate was, of course, my employment was through school. My housing was through school. Mm. My food, my meal plan was through school. And so dropping out, of course, nixed all of those. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for, for the next 10 months after dropping out, I lived in my um, cushy 2003 Ford Taurus, uh, made it through a really terrible Rhode Island blizzard, um, both physically surviving it and also emotionally trying to survive it. It was, you know, it shaped so much of me. And I still remember the, the sting of waking up next to a police officer, uh, who's, you know, waiting to kick me out of whatever Kmart parking lot I'm sleeping in or the feeling of not being able to sleep because it's too cold. Mm. Um, that, that it's a deep, uh, deep type of pain and a, and a shame that, that came with it that um, really did shape a lot of how I saw myself in my life. The thing that happened in this, in this moment though, that I overlooked, I've, I've dropped out of RISD. I'm living in my car. I'm it's winter time. It's December at this point. I can't open the car door sometimes because it's piled high with snow. So I just spend the day in the car reading and eating raisins. But my grandmother, of course, I was lying my butt off to her. She had, she could not know any of this. She's back in Chicago at this time. Um, my grandmother and I were on the phone one day, we're having a conversation and she lets it slip. Now I should say my grandfather from Sugarlock, Mississippi, he passed away when I was about uh, 16 years old, barely ever talked about Mississippi. Mm. He, 
he had two words to describe uh, his his understanding of his hometown, and that was "Don't go." So he passed away when I was a teenager, and my grandmother let it slip that all along we had been paying property taxes on three acres of land in Mississippi. What? Wow. So technically it is still in the family. Now it's split between, you know, 50 odd people. So everybody's got a two foot by three inch parcel, Mm -hmm. but it's still, it's still, it's still there. So she, of course, this is a, just saying this to a impulsive spontaneous artist like myself was a terrible mistake on her part. Of course, I started the car up and drove down immediately to find the place. Oh my goodness. And because nobody living could tell me where it was that first trip, I didn't find it. I met some incredible people. I had a great time, but I never was able to find that plot of land. Not until the second time I went down uh, and spent some time in the Knoxby County courthouse uh, in uh, Macon, Mississippi, just a, a few miles north of Sugarlock. And I went through, I spent a couple days going through those old deed books, looking at who sold what parcel in 1889, and then who bought this in 1910. They measure everything in uh, fence posts, which was extremely challenging to convert. But eventually, I was able to figure out where this three-acre spot was. and. I got in the car, drove right back down to Sugarlock, and uh, found the spot. I found the place where my grandfather was born. And I parked the car on the side of a dirt road, pitched a tent, set up a propane uh, camping stove, and got to work making myself comfortable. I met everybody around. It was an incredible incredible this must, trip. This must have changed you in ways that I, I can't even fathom. So, I mean, what, well, gosh, there's so much here. So <laughs> um, I, my first question is from your experience of dealing with the, the mental anguish of being homeless for a while, having made the decision to leave school, not really knowing what was going to happen next. How did you how did you deal with that? How did you get through it from a from a, a mental standpoint? Um, and what what did you learn from that that is helping you be who you are today? Let me um, let me be very real uh, and say that I struggled mightily. I was again. I mentioned being in a dark place, but that that sense of loneliness and depression wasn't something particularly new. It's something that I've I've had with me my whole life. I still have to this day. But to hold that type of of depression that you wrestle with on a daily basis, and then have the external circumstances that I had, mm-hmm. um, it really was was tough. It was really really hard. Um, and to be down there on my own, not knowing anybody, uh, not feeling like I had a community or a network to lean on or a support structure outside of my my family who have stood by me through all of these rash, <laughs> ultimately your, your parents. You haven't decisions. talked about your mom and dad, but your, mm-hmm. your your mom and dad were they. I can't imagine that they were very happy that you dropped out of school. 
Um, but clearly you didn't go to them and say, help me, you know, pick, pick me up from this. You, right. you went to, you, you did it on your own. Yes. There's a, a hard headedness there that they know very well. Mm. Um, my, my parents have been through my life so deeply supportive, um, in part because of their own, you know, they were both raised poor, uh, and really, I think both felt like they didn't have the opportunity to live the dreams that they had for themselves. Mm. They sacrificed just an immense amount for my sisters and I. And so part of the way that that manifested, they're both very creative people. My mother is a preschool teacher. My father is a jazz guitarist and an attorney. And um, they never hesitated. Whatever ridiculous dream we said we had, they did not hesitate to support it because they knew this thing of not having their own dream supported. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was, it has been such a defining feature of my life to have the two of them in my corner in the way that they have. And of course uh, my mother was mortified when I dropped out of school. Of course she was, Yeah, but, um, they trusted that I was doing something that I needed to do. And if it was a mistake, that I would come to understand that in time. And I think they see now that as challenging as it was and as painful as it was, dropping out at that time was the best decision. It was what I needed to be able to, frankly, to, to stay alive and to um, feel like I was living my own life. And eventually, Spoiler warning, when I did go back to RISD and when I did graduate, that was also the best decision I could have made. Mm -hmm. It was, I had an incredible time going back to RISD after I had done all of these, these um, life experiences. This is such a, I think, an important story for young people to hear and for their parents to hear, you know, because we're, we're living in a, in a time where um, you know, the whole education system, the cost of higher education, you know, whether it's worth it, is it not, you know, people can be successful without it or mom and dad, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to study this and then things happen and, and, and you, you decide to drop out or whatever happens. I think it's so important for people to hear stories like yours and know that you can come out on the other side and that you can follow your heart and your gut and still be okay. And then on the parental side, it's, we have to be able to, you know, take a stand or take a, take a, a, a look back and take a breath and say, okay, I'm going to trust that I raised my child to be able to stand on his or her own two feet and that they're going to be able to make the decisions that they need to make. And then I might not agree with it, but you know, I, I, I trust them to do it easier said than done. But, but look at you now. Look at you now. You know, I, I absolutely agree, Linda. I, I, I can't imagine how different my decisions would have been if I had a massive familial battle about going to art school to begin with, mm -hmm. which I know my, my mother felt a ton of anxiety about, but she trusted me. Um, and then again, dropping out, going back, all of the decisions in mm -hmm. between, even, even going down to Mississippi was obviously yeah. a scary, controversial thing in the family. 
So I want, and, I want to get back to that. So you're back, now, sure. you're back in Mississippi now. So we're back now to the point in your life where you found the, the three acres of property that your family had owned all of these years that nobody knew about, <laughs> except the ones that were paying the taxes. You find it, you set up, you set up, you know, home there for, for a bit. What did you do? What did you learn? And what was next after that? Sure. Uh, I, I did a lot. Looking back, it feels like I, I had a whole mini life for myself. I got a job at the, the truck stop with a really wonderful um, individual who's since passed, Tommy Orr, who um, I was very sad to, to learn had passed away. He offered me a job uh, riding alongside him, selling uh, smoked uh, pulled pork sandwiches just outside the Choctaw Reservation from his hand-built smoker. Uh, we did that together. I gentleman right down the dirt road taught me how to chop down a tree, how to make firewood. Uh, I got some of the best home cooked meals I have ever. I can only eaten. imagine. <laughs> I no, I've been spoiled for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm ruined at, you know, anywhere else I go. Um, but more than anything, I was able to spend time and share space with folks who our connection was only theoretical at the outset. We had nothing on paper in common aside from this singular shared person who happened to have been born down there, but none of them had ever met. None of them knew my last name. None of them knew this story that, that galvanized my, my grandfather's exile. And so all we had together to bind us was this theory. And yet, it was such a powerful connection. I have been lucky to go down until COVID. I had been going down annually to reconnect with folks and, and see folks and meet new folks. But it's such a powerful, I, there, there's an artist who lives in Providence named Becky Davis. And I think all the time I consider what she, she taught me, which is we know that Matter can't be destroyed or created. Energy can't be destroyed or created. And what that means to me is that the matter that we have is the matter that we will have and have always had, which is to say that when I envision the home in flames, that the embers of that fire that swallowed countless, countless homes, that those Embers, those particles of smoke, the carbon monoxide and dioxide, the soot, all of it is still here. In our atmosphere, under our feet, the, the carbon monoxide from those fires fed trees that now I get to hike among and that built homes and railway ties from Sugarlock to Providence and everywhere in between. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, th the, 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 th so the thing Becky really taught me is even more confounding, more overwhelming than the fact that every particle that made that fire is still here is remembering that every droplet of water that put it out is with us too. Mm. She talks about the water cycle, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what gas, what is it? Gas, ice, water, gas, ice, water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, that, that the water that a stegosaurus drank is the same water that is here today. The same water that's passing through my body, passing through yours. It's 
the same water that has always been here. And all of that means something simple that maybe we know intrinsically, which is what I think about as, as an artist, which is that every fire that will burn, every fire that the future holds, and every drop of water to put it out is already here. Those fires in the future, which we have not lived through and cannot predict, the tools that we have here now are the tools that will fight those fires. Artists are here to bring those tools to light, to name them, to depict them, and I think most importantly, to hand them to one another. And so I think about that fire. I think about that water in Mississippi, the creek that my grandfather used to play in that runs right through that, that three acres. And now I'm lucky to have a life where I'm able to think through those spaces where history smashes together and where those tools become a little bit hard to find and to be able to excavate them for the folks around me. It is that, that trip to Mississippi was definitional for me. It was yeah. everything. It, it, definitional, life-changing for sure. And the stories that, that you share about that, um, this is, this is why I wanted to talk to you. So I first learned of you reading the Lightmakers Manifesto by our mm -hmm. mutual friend, Karen Walrand. And I'm going to read you a quote that you, that's from Karen's book. And this is something that you said to her. I try to approach everyone knowing that there are pieces of their story that I don't know and won't ever know. But if you think about it, empathy is actually tied up in that unknowing. We don't have to know everyone's story to love them. When I read that, I was like, okay, I've got to have this man on the podcast because <laughs> that to me is the whole point. I mean, it's the reason that, that I started the podcast is to talk about that and to try to help us understand each other's stories because so much of the, the, um, the division and um, the chaos that we're experiencing right now, the polarization is rooted in fear of the unknown, of not knowing the other because we've not been exposed or we just can't know everyone's story. But everyone is deserving of love and light and humanity and empathy. And to me, that's the point. And that's what your story so beautifully illustrates, I think. Well, you know, what I've, what I've learned in my time as an organizer in politics and as an artist is that, you know, when I dropped out of RISD, I sort of overcompensated. I went all the way to one end. I had been fully in this one artistic side. And then I pivoted and went only into politics. I didn't paint for years. And at that time, I would have said that I wanted to make art as a weapon against injustice. I, I was approaching art because I wanted to, under, to give a political message to achieve a political goal. And what I realized was that I, in time, after I did go back to RISD and graduated, I realized that I had it backwards, that I wasn't approaching art because I cared about politics. 
I was dragged into politics because I'm an artist. Hmm. It was my identity as an artist that forced me into politics, not the other way around. As an artist, I was just intrinsically poised to insist on the humanity and the dignity of the people around me. You know, an artist takes a piece of discarded material, something on the side of the road or in a trash can, and you can see it as a sculpture. And that's not because we just happen to turn everything into art. It's because we insist on the dignity of all things, the dignity of all people, dignity of all creatures of the planet. And so to me, it is as an artist that I'm required to fight climate crisis because I believe in the dignity of waterways. As an artist, I have no choice but to be a prison abolitionist because I have no choice but to insist on the dignity of people behind bars, warehoused and stuffed into solitary confinement. And so working on legislation or organizing campaigns is an extension of the paintings, just as... Mm. The canvases are generative spaces for thinking about organizing for the way I'm, I'm engaging with folks, which is what I'm thinking about as I'm painting. You know, I, I think we don't say this enough, but artists really have an obligation. Artists have a uh, uh, responsibility to be embedded, to be integral parts of the community of, of justice movements to help protect abortion rights and end cash bail and outlaw housing discrimination and on and on and on. I don't think it's a choice anymore. I think we're called to it as creative folks who believe in that dignity uh, of all, all things, all people. This is, this is what gives me hope. Um, people of your generation, uh, you're, you're a millennial, aren't you? Aren't you a millennial? I am. I'm you? a solid millennial. You're a solid I was, millennial. <laughs> I was born in 89, so I had a, okay. I had six sweet months in the 80s. But that was <laughs> okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that it's, it's one of the things about your generation and Gen Z that gives me hope, that you're thinking about things in a much more holistic manner, and you are not only recognizing the connections that exist among all things, but um, you're, you're, you're thinking about and activating, mobilizing ways to um, take those concepts and address some of the problems that are really existential at this point, especially when you think about the climate crisis. I love the way you, you, described the intersection of your art and your activism and that it's your art that drives the activism and it's not the other way around. I just think that that is just, it's just, it's, it's perfect. What do you, what do you think that people of, of my generation um, don't get about people of your generation and how you see the world and how you are trying to right some of the wrongs and move us forward in a more positive direction. What's, what are we not getting that, that is contributing to the divide between the generations, if you will? I think, I mean, the generational divide is one of the many increasing, increasingly polarized sectors of, of this country. Mm -hmm. And the way that we are just racing, sprinting away from each other, um, 
not only is a challenge in terms of you know keeping keeping a political system and relationships together but it's it's more than anything it makes our nation ungovernable we we are losing our sense of democracy and i don't mean that strictly with respect to uh mm-hmm. coup coup attempts or or things like that which are active mm-hmm. as we know mm-hmm. um but also just in our ability to actually pass agendas to be able to get work done our system has become so gridlocked and some of that some of that divide um comes down so i'll, I'll boil it down to to one word i have i teach uh grad students and undergrad painters and all the time all 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 the time I'm confronted by um students who are stuck asking for permission to experiment, permission to take risks. So much I'm going to sound uh Linda, you described me as maybe slightly on the young side, but I'm about to sound really old. <laughs> I think I think social media has so deeply warped the way that we think about ourselves mm-hmm. and the way that we relate to each other for me politics is the most fundamentally human activity we can engage in it is the art of choosing how we relate to each other way that it is politics is the art of choosing how we relate to each other that's right okay say more go <laughs> well, you know, I think most folks define politics through systems and procedures and um uh you know this type of work that exists in politics with respect to finance or or uh you know infrastructure. But for me, engage understanding politics is understanding relationships with yourself and with the world around you with the pine tree outside your window and with the animals under that pine tree and with the folks in the house next to you for me politics is so profoundly human it is so i i mean i i can't find words large enough to describe how important it is that folks see themselves and understand themselves as political two-legged creatures on this earth that we get to choose how we relate to each other that we get to choose how we relate to the natural world and that that choice has immense power as we can see through climate catastrophe we've made really sometimes terrible choices about how we relate to the world with respect to violence sometimes we've made terrible choices how we relate to other human beings but ultimately that choice is still there Every day we have the ability to wake up and choose different politics. I have students all the time uh you know agonizing just in anguish about uh I I want to make these paintings but I don't know how to get my message across. I don't know if they'll understand. I want to make sure I'm giving this clear clear message whether it's political or not. And I always try to slow students down and say worry less about what it is that you are trying to say and ask yourself who do i want to listen to 
That is to say that painting and politics and everything else for me is about building a lifelong posture of listening. listening. It's the it's the exact same posture that's required for organizing. To be an organizer or an artist is to listen to the voices around you, to be prepared to receive those messages and to change the world, not so that your message necessarily gets amplified, but so that the voices of those others are able to be heard too. You change the world around those voices so other people can hear. Uh, that just takes my breath away. The, the listening, it's listening. I mean, so two things came to mind right away when you said that. Um, so as a journalist, I think that the greatest skill any journalist has is the ability to listen. So when, when I am approached by aspiring journalists, those who are in school or just really beginning their careers, and I would always, you know, be asked, what, what is what makes a good, a good journalist? What makes a good interview, et cetera? And my, my number one answer is always the ability to listen. So you have to listen. Of course, you go into a conversation or an interview prepared and knowing what the research is and having an idea, if not specific questions, at least an idea of the kinds of questions that you're going to ask. But for goodness sakes, don't be so concerned about what the next question is that you didn't listen to the answer of the one you just asked. Because the gold is always in the follow-up. That's, that's really where the juice is. It's all, you know, because then you're, you're asking a question that's based upon what the previous answer was that you didn't know what that answer was going to be. And so you have to have the confidence to follow that and to listen. And then the other piece that I, I wanted to say is that one of the taglines of the podcast is having the courage to listen with an open mind. And that's the whole point of being able to share our stories. So somebody might, you know, come to this podcast and see your picture and read a blurb or two about you and decide that you, Jordan Seabear, you're the other for that person because you're <laughs> black and you're, you know, you're an artist and you're, you know, you're a political organizer and you're an activist and they're thinking, okay, I got his number. And then... <laughs> But actually sit down and listen to what you have to say. And guess what? I bet you that there are way, way more things that that person who looks at you as the other has more in common with you. But if they, but they have to be able to listen with an open mind to even get there. And that's, that's the point. Of course. And, and to be clear, listening is not a passive activity. Hallelujah. Listening, Hallelujah. <laughs> listening, <laughs> listening builds power. I talk, it, it, I, I love thinking about defining myself as a student. I think we should all try to be students as, as long as we can, whether or not we're in a formal school, because the root of the word in Latin is not just to study. It is to be eager. It is to be diligent. When we are listening closely to the world and to the things around us, then we have no choice but to act. Listening breeds that call to action. When we dive in thinking we've got all the answers, we know what's up, 
we we know best. We actually that's when we start to burn out. Nobody's listening. Nobody's acting the way I want them to. This political result isn't happening. When we approach work that way, that's when we get burnt out. But when, you know, there's there's all these conversations around self-care and rest happening right now, mm-hmm. rest as resistance. When we're able to build projects that require us to listen, require us to learn, to not have the answers, we are so much more nourished by it. And, and when we are listening to things like history, we understand then that we have a responsibility to act upon it. We, so for example, one of the, one of the great joys in my life is that I get to serve as co-director for a group called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture which I will clue your listeners in is not a federal agency. We, uh, I like to think of us more like a performance piece. So, you know, I came up in political circles as, as an anarchist thinking about how to achieve full self-determination in the absence of, of the state. And in this project, we are performing the state. Why? Because where the government leaves a gap where the government fails, we do for ourselves in community, horizontally. Mm. The only reason we're able to use the name U.S. Department of Arts and Culture is because the U.S. government never made one. <laughs> so, <Wow>. so <laughs> I like to volumes. joke. That speaks volumes right there, right? Exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah. I, I always joke that uh, I'm just doing this work until uh, President Stacey Abrams sends me a cease and desist letter because she finally decided to make one. And and when she does, she will inherit all of these projects, all of these partnerships. She will inherit this history that has to be listened to, that can remain within the agency. It, you know, one of, one of the big projects we, we took on when COVID hit, we did listening calls. We wanted to understand where our communities were being hardest hit how we might be able to respond and looking back at history and listening to it, we knew that there were two brief moments in the 20th century when the government, the federal government demonstrated that when it chooses, it can directly support artists, not simply as engines of tourist dollars or commercial engines, uh, but as cultural practitioners. And that's the works progress administration of the new deal era and the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, um, which was in the 70s. And they showed what we all know, which is that artists are smart people, artists are able to solve big problems, and artists can build social cohesion through cultural practice. But if we aren't listening to history, we would never know that. Mm. We would never know that projects like that can directly support folks at the grassroots level. We would never know if we weren't listening. And so when we set out to uh, create our own version of that, like in keeping with the rest of our organization, we called it a people's WPA rather than the original WPA. But to be able to imagine and build a credible vision of what that would look like through listening to history, through listening to our communities, only then were we able to create this project to bring these 25 incredible artists all across the country together into this cohort and build a policy toolkit for cities and foundations and schools all across the country to replicate the project, to listen to those artists that we brought together and scale it in their own communities. All of it requires being able to have those open ears to folks. Mm. 
I love that. I absolutely love that. And so when you talk about listening to history, the first thing that popped into my mind is this, this insidious movement that is happening, not only in the state of Florida, which is kind of leading the way, but also in the great state of Texas, we got it going on right here and, you know, pick a state um, where there is a concerted effort to huh, whitewash history, rewrite it, um, not teach it, the accurate history of this country. Um, it sounds to me like the project that you just described that you're, you're doing as the co-director of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture is in its own way um, counteracting the movement to force us to not acknowledge history as it, as it really is. Through your art and through your projects, through helping people understand the history and listening to it, that's, that's one way of, of, com of combating the movements that are out there trying to tear it all down. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. You know, I encourage anyone listening to this, I encourage you to take a weekend when you can, sit down and think about what is my theory of change? What do I believe if this person, if this organization, if this thing changed, then the world and the lives of those around me would be different? Ask yourself, what do you actually think makes communities better? And if, if your answer involves forgetting history, if your answer involves making sure certain people aren't at the table, if your answer involves, well, we can only win an election if these people don't vote, then it is time for some very serious reflection. We are trying at the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, we are just like you said, trying to combat so many of these narrative uh, strategies. And I call them strategies because they are not accidental. No. They are well intentional. Well thought out. Well thought out. Absolutely. Very intentional. Absolutely. And despite, here's the reason I'm optimistic, despite endless stories to the contrary, Black Americans have long been the moral center of this nation, surviving generations of chattel slavery, we endured, we resisted, we had incredible revolts, and we also built vibrant familial structures and cultural institutions. And then post-slavery, how did Black folks respond to the degrading, the dehumanizing conditions of urban life? By creating the single most popular form of music in the history of mankind, hip-hop. How did Blacks respond to decades of violent segregation and routine terrorism by inventing modern nonviolence? It is so just deplorably ironic that America has embraced this image of African-American folks uh, as less than, as second-class citizens, as violent or unintelligent when Black Americans have demonstrated countless times 
that not only nonviolence but moral clarity have dominated black identity in the face of unparalleled oppression. And so for that reason, I remain optimistic. It is for me always about shifting the Overton window, about changing the window of acceptability in our culture, shifting it slowly over time. But once it shifts, it's shifted. We think about things like interracial marriage or uh, more, much more recently gay marriage or uh, you know any of these things that at one time were absolutely unthinkable. Universal enfranchisement, for example. All of these things took not, they didn't just happen. They didn't just shift with time. Culture didn't just move automatically on its own. It was pushed. It was pushed and pushed and pushed by organizers on the ground, listening, understanding present conditions, understanding what those challenges really were, and developing a theory of change that says, okay, I've studied, I've listened, I know what this community is going through. Here's the thing that I believe will change it. If I can push on this thing, it's going to shift that window a little bit this direction. All of that is organizing work. All of it is creative, people-centered organizing work. It is artistic. It is creative. It is political. It is all wrapped up together. And I, we could have a conversation, Linda, 50 years from now. I hope I'm still as optimistic because I just can't help but believe in the sensational creativity of our communities. I have seen too much beauty. I have seen too much joy and too much love to not believe in it. Hmm. You, when you talk so passionately about organizing, uh, of course, the most famous organizer to come out of the South Side of Chicago is Barack Obama. <laughs> and I remember in those early days when he was really just beginning to make his mark on the national scene, so many naysayers were like, well, what's an organizer? Well, what is that? You know, what makes him think that he's qualified to lead this country, you know, with only or only organizing on his resume and in his background? That must have really given you a few chuckles. Um, oh, of course. <laughs> I, I to this day, I remember uh, Sarah Palin. Uh, I can't remember the ex I, I should look it up. I can't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of, you know, well, what the heck is a community organizer? What does that even mean? I remember mean? that. Right. Yeah. And of course, the reality is a good organizer isn't out front. A good organizer isn't necessarily seen on the front pages or, uh, you know, interviewed for the news stories because a good organizer is first and foremost listening and facilitating. They are helping develop the leadership of those around them to do those interviews, to do those news stories, to speak at that public uh, hearing, to provide that testimony. So, with, you know, with in some the ways, ultimate goal of making lasting change. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the only way that it does happen. Yeah. Organizing has always, through this country and other countries' history, been the way. It is through struggle. It is through doing things that some people see as um, uncomfortable or too loud or too fast. Those are the qualities 
that defines something that pushes that window of acceptability a bit, that pushes the culture, pushes what folks are ready and willing to accept. You know, that's what changes things from, uh, you know, when I was a young kid talking about global warming and maybe we should be recycling more to now culturally understanding it's, it's widely accepted that climate change is a reality the climate change is the most acute crisis humankind has ever faced. Those windows of acceptability shifted because groups like the Sunrise Movement were doing uncomfortable, challenging, loud organizing work. Mm -hmm. They were clogging up streets, clogging up political offices, having people tell them, can you move a little slower? Can you be a little quieter? And they were listening to their communities and saying, actually, this is a crisis. It is hardest hit in these neighborhoods. It is being felt most deeply by indigenous folks in this territory. We are listening to those folks. And because we are listening, we cannot slow down. We cannot be quieter. It is that listening that pushes us. So as you listen now to your students, to your community, what is driving you to do the next piece of your work? What, what is that? What, what are you, what are we going to be hearing about when it comes to Jordan Seabury in the next few years? I love being able to organize creatively. Uh, U.S. Department of Arts and Culture is my home. I'm so thrilled to be organizing in that space. I also, I knew I would like teaching. Uh, I had always wanted to teach, but as soon as I started, I realized I was totally obsessed with it. I love working with students. It is the absolute best, totally life-affirming. Um, but I also serve in Providence as an elections official. I help oversee the city's elections division, which, uh, you know, I started in February of 2020, which uh, could not have predicted how much that would change. And the reality is, you know, it's so, it's hard to predict because I always go back to something um, an artist and former professor of mine, Daniel Boschkoff, told me, which is that an artist is not someone who picks up a paintbrush or sculpts clay. An artist is someone who blurs distinctions between fields. And so what I can promise you, if we talk again one year, five years, 20, 50 years from now, my hope, I won't be able to predict what I'll be doing, but my hope is that I will be embodying that work as an artist. That if I'm still in elections, I'm doing that as an artist. If I'm still running a nonprofit, I'm doing that as an artist. And if I'm teaching, of course, I'm doing that as an artist, which is to say, I'm listening. Mm. Oh my gosh. We, we will definitely be talking again. You have an open <laughs> invitation to come back anytime and, and share with our audience. You are just brilliant and your, your passion and, the way that you um, articulate your your passion and your vision is just um, it's infectious, and I am just so thrilled and honored to to meet you and to have you on the show. You're you're amazing, and I I can't wait. I cannot wait to see <laughs> what you know. I, I have to. I just have to ask the last question, and then and then you get to ask me a question, and we'll switch it up. Um, 
but do you ever see yourself running for office? Because, you know, we, we need people like you in office, but at the same time, I understand what that means. And, 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 and you're already making a contribution to affect change where you are right now. And that might be the, the place that, that you feel you can make the greatest change. Do you ever see yourself running for office? Linda, I'll give you a very political answer and not commit myself to anything on the record one way or the other. But what I will say, <laughs> what I, what I will say is that it is my belief that history instructs us that the world is changed by folks on the outside, that political relationships and structures are changed by folks building power on the outside of those structures, on the outside of the state houses, on the outside of the White House, and that those buildings and the legislators and judges and folks inside those buildings respond, contract, and re reflect from that organizing power. So as long as I'm able, I want to be doing what my theory of change tells me changes the world, which is organizing. So without making any solid commitment one way or the other, I intend to stay banging on the walls from the outside for as long as I can. I'm right there with you, brother. I am right there with you. I'm banging too. I am banging right there with you. This has been just amazing. Thank you so much. And so now we will switch it up and you get to ask me a question. Beautiful. I, you know, Linda, I'm actually curious about many of the things that we've been talking about, particularly uh, about the roles of narrative for you as it relates to podcasting and journalism. I think people often assume that things change, like we said, just sort of organically over time, that it was inevitable that this group would gain voting rights or this group would gain the right to marry, etc. So I actually would love to invite your perspective on how journalism and podcasting can push that, how you've seen it have an impact on politics, on the ways we relate to each other, sort of your theory of change with respect to this work that you've taken on? Such an interesting question. Um, when I left traditional journalism, when I left my television station many years, actually, gosh, 2006. So you were just a little boy when I left, <laughs> when I left my TV station. And um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in journalism and through a series of events and life circumstances and whatnot, I found my way back to storytelling and doing it in a way that feeds my soul and my passion. And fast forward a few more years, and that's when I started the podcast. Um, I think, you know, podcasting has democratized the ability to get stories out there, to share different points of view. Um, I think that because of the explosion of the technology that makes it so much easier for us to do that, it's a, it's a great thing. But the other side of that coin is that because just because everybody can doesn't mean everybody should. And 
and there have been the there has been the blurring of lines between what is real journalism as i was instructed in school and people's opinions disinformation misinformation you add in social media you add you add in all of those things and you're stirring the pot and it makes it very very difficult to um ensure that the information that's getting out is real that it's accurate i think more than anything we need to have a um a populace that understands how to consume media how to educate educate oneself about trusted outlets how to decipher between what's real and what's not. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of all over the place with this answer, but I think it's all connected, you know, it's all connected. So when you think about the, the what the narratives are, you know, for me, my narrative was and is wanting to amplify and elevate voices that might not otherwise be heard the beauty of podcasting versus traditional journalism is that I have the ability to go as deep as I want to on any subject with any person. When we started this, this conversation, I said to you, typically I go 30 to 45 minutes, but you know, if it gets really good, well, right now we're at an hour and four minutes. Okay. <laughs> now, if I were working for a television station, they would be chopping, chopping, chopping. And I would have, you know, if this were live, I would have been, you know, booted off the air a long time ago. But I have the freedom to go as long and as deep as as it as a topic or a, um, a subject requires, and that's very freeing to me. And and. And so I'm, I really, I love the ability to do that and to, and to have some sort of a, of a say, some sort of contribution into the, the national dialogue about what is going on in our world, because we, you know, we, we have a lot of work to do. Absolutely. I love that, Linda. And it sounds like for our next conversation, we're going to have to talk about misinformation and knowledge production oh, and trusted messengers yeah. and the role of an artist and a journalist in building knowledge. We have, we have lots more to, oh, yeah. to jam on. Yeah, I think. Oh, most definitely. And, and what's something you probably don't know about me is that before journalism, I was an artist. I was a dancer. I, was, I did not yeah, know that. I was a dancer and an actress. I had a whole nother career in performing arts. So that was my first love, still love it, still dancing. Um, but I had a whole artistic career um, before I went into journalism. And, and I think, I know that career was seminal in my ability to move rather seamlessly into the journalistic world after I got my education, of course. But, uh, they're they're so connected you know i i think being an artist before i was a journalist made me a better journalist 
Absolutely agree. And it sounds now like we not only have to talk about knowledge production and trust, but also a talent show as well. So I look forward to that. (laughs) Most definitely. Jordan, it has been a pleasure and I look forward to the next time. It's been a joy to meet you, Linda. Thank you so much for not only this conversation, but elevating these stories and, and building the space for these types of conversations. My pleasure. So I think it's safe to say that this was just the first of many interviews that I will do with Jordan Seabury. What a powerhouse. What a change maker. What a light maker. So much to offer this world. Thank you for giving him permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. You know what to do. Go to the show notes. We, of course, will link to everything that's going on in Jordan's world. Thanks for being a part of the Our Voices Matter community. If you haven't already subscribed, what the heck are you waiting for? Just do it. All righty. Would you please do that for me? Thank you. And then join us next time. We'll see you then.